0: Welcome again to the New Zealand China Council podcast. I'm Alistair Crozier, the Executive Director of the Council. Today we're catching up with the New Zealand Business Roundtable in China, or NZBRIC as it's known. Our guests are Anna May Isby, the BRIC's Executive Director, who has been based in China for over a decade, and James, or Jimmy Robertson, who is Trade Strategy Manager Asia for Fonterra in Shanghai, and also an Executive Member of the BRIC. The Business Roundtable has just taken the pulse of New Zealand companies doing business with China by completing its first-ever Business Outlook Report. The report gathered unique information about the operating environment, priorities and future prospects of Kiwi businesses in China as they emerge from some very difficult COVID years. The preliminary findings were presented to the New Zealand Prime Minister when he visited China in June, and now that the report has been published, this is a great chance for us to learn more about current Kiwi-China business sentiment hot off the press. Anna May and Jimmy, welcome to the New Zealand China Council podcast. This is something we do from time to time when something comes up that we think people need to know about. Uh, And the New Zealand Business Roundtable in China has just released your first business outlook report surveying um, New Zealand companies and, and their engagement with China. Um, So this is a fantastic opportunity for us to hear more about it and to hear the views of Kiwi companies on the ground about what's going on with China in 2023. So Anna, may I thought um, we'd start briefly for those who may not know the BRIC. um, Who are you up in China and what do you do?
1: Awesome. Thank you, Alistair, so much. And it really is a pleasure to be here today and be able to share um, and talk more to some of the insights into the recent report that NZ BRIC published. Um, And so we at the New Zealand Business Roundtable in China, we're a non-for-profit representational platform, and we were founded in 2018 to be a voice for New Zealand businesses here in China. Our organization is made up of a mix of industrial members, corporate members, and individual members who all have a vested interest in the success of the New Zealand-China trading relationship. They cover a range of export sectors, including food and beverage, services, cosmetics, travel, HR, FMCG, and health. And over the past few years, our focus really has been on collaborating and supporting New Zealand businesses and their teams through various challenges created by the ever-changing responses to the pandemic. Now, as we move into the post-COVID recovery phase, we are really leaning into advocacy, that representation, and providing information and insights to our members. And that's what really sort of drove the report as well.
0: Mm. I've certainly seen um, the BRIC uh, go from strength to strength over the last few years, and that's obviously despite all the the COVID challenges, as you mentioned. So to be a member of the New Zealand BRIC, do you need to have a corporate presence in China or do you have some New Zealand-based members as well?
1: Um, Currently, the requirement for becoming an NZ BRIC member is... Um, that your company has to be registered in New Zealand and you do need to be doing, you know, some sort of trading with China. I mean, in technicality, you don't have to have a presence in China, but for us to really be able to deliver value for companies, we do recommend that the companies that do want to join our membership have that presence in China um, just because we've got that closeness and uh, we can have those regular catch ups.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And how many members in total at the moment?
1: Um at the moment we have 26 members. Um, so that's grown quite quickly this year, and we've got quite a healthy pipeline of um, new members coming on
0: board too. Great. Uh, yeah, so the survey, I think I'm right in saying it's, it's the first time it's it's been run. How did it all work?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um with the survey, it really sought to understand how New Zealand businesses are seeing the Chinese market post-COVID and We actually conducted the survey in May of 2023 this year and received responses from 51 New Zealand companies that are doing business with or in China. And we had the senior most person looking after the China market, answering the questions. We also had a mix of sectors represented. So as expected, food and beverage was um, the leading sector followed by professional services, and we also had responses from FMCG companies, manufacturing and sourcing, healthcare, tourism, finance, pet food, and entertainment also included. And all of the companies uh, that we surveyed have a presence in China, some smaller, some a lot larger, and their offices were located all around, but predominantly concentrated in Shanghai.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense, given given the New Zealand um, business footprint. So look, um, May 2023, which coincidentally was the month I was up in China for the first time since 2019, there was a real um, energy um, when I was up there. And I think that's reflected in one of the key findings of the report, which is that almost 80% of the businesses surveyed were at least to some degree optimistic about market opportunities in China. Fast forward a few months now to September and to address really one of the elephants in the room, I mean, the, the mood down here at the moment, looking at, at media, has become very dark about the Chinese economy. It's, it's kind of battle of the indicators at the moment, um, with the Chinese government presenting one set and foreign media and analysts presenting another set. So just up on the ground, do you think if you ran the survey again today that the response about optimism would be somewhat different?
1: Yeah, and I think that's um, a very topical question that we're all being asked quite a lot at the moment. And um, I might begin by maybe setting the context a little bit. Um, so what we really notice, which is, you know, not just happening now, but probably been a trend, is that there always is sort of a gap between the perception by Western media and the reality of what's happening on the ground here in China. Currently, it's in various countries' own interests to denigrate China's economic performance, And despite the bounce in economic performance in Q1 of 2023, there are still three big international factors at play that are affecting business in China. Firstly, consumer confidence is low, and this is following a global hangover from COVID, not just in China. The Russia-Ukraine war is hampering European trade as well as the oil trade. And the noise in the USA about the Chinese economy is being exacerbated as they run up to the 2024 election. So that dialogue around China is really becoming a political football field. Domestically in China's economy, you know, we see a sluggish property sector. There's been a slowdown in exports affecting the manufacturing sector, which in turn impacts employment and increases input costs. And within this international and domestic economic context, New Zealand businesses' short-term attitudes really vary here depending on the sector. Commodity-related trade is feeling the pain in the short term, but the reason why many remain optimistic in the medium to long term is a mix of commodity ups and downs, which is cyclical. And on the other hand, there are sectors that have value-add or localized products like tourism, pet food, health, and well-being, and these are thriving. In Tier 1 cities, we see that consumers are still experience buying, but spending less on big items. And in tier two to four cities, there's a slower trickle of post-COVID retail bounce, but it is expected to bounce.
0: Thanks for those insights, Jimmy. I feel we better bring you in at this point as well. And of course, you you work for a company that's got its finger very closely on the consumer pulse up in China. What do you think about the last few months? Is, uh, is the sense of optimism beginning to wane?
2: Cheers. Yeah, so no, it's, it's great to be on here today, I'm probably reflecting back to... When the New Zealand-China Council was up here in May, like you said, things were feeling pretty positive. The country had just opened up. We'd seen some good numbers around GDP growth based upon prior years. But since then, it has felt a wee bit flat in the last couple of months. Probably the best way of describing it is a good Kiwi term of, yeah, nah, yeah, there's a bit of positivity around that sort of medium to longer term outlook. But that sort of lack of consumer confidence that everyone's talking about right now is causing a wee bit of concern. I think the challenge that I sort of foresee is that the talk of consumer confidence can sometimes be a bit self-fulfilling, which is interesting in the fact that everyone was a bit doubtful earlier in the year that China would hit its 5% GDP growth targets. It's looking like the economy is is on track to achieve that. That's better than what we saw last year around the 3% um, in 2022, which for many businesses was extremely challenging. So for us on the ground, Yes, although there's sort of some concerns around consumer confidence and demand, ease of doing business is a lot easier than than what we saw last year. But there's there's no shortage of challenges that you can point at in regards to what Beijing's grappling with at the moment, as Anna May touched upon before, that sort of weak demand for China's exports globally, reduced sort of population growth here in China, which has been a real driver of consumer demand. But I think for a lot of businesses, that optimism over the medium to longer term is... It's really driven by the fact that we're only scratching the surface in terms of where New Zealand products are accessing uh, the Chinese economy. 1.4 billion people, and to be fair, most New Zealand businesses are only really targeting your tier one and tier two cities. So I think that's reflected in the report that that sort of expansion beyond your Shanghai, Beijing, Shenzhen, Guangzhou uh, into some of those tier three, even tier four cities creates new opportunities for New Zealand businesses. And, and that's the real challenge for us.
0: Mm. you know when I worked up in China I I used to spend a lot of time listening just to, to my local staff and just hearing what they were saying about their families and their friends. I mean these are people in full-time employment uh, working for New Zealand companies for example so you know they're financially secure are they also just basically is it things like concern about the apartments they own and the mortgages or is it just wanting to wait until the sunshine comes out again and they can just feel a little bit more Positive that things are beginning to track again?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. You probably don't notice it too much, like you say, around those that that have that job security or or decent standard of living already. I would say, yeah, amongst colleagues or or even local friends, I, I hear no one talk about concerns in the property sector. It's predominantly driven by the media that I hear externally. It doesn't mean that that concern doesn't exist, but I do feel like people are just happy to save, happy to wait. There has been a sort of talk around lack of stimulus from the central government and, and whether a bit of a sugar kick will give people a, a bit more confidence to spend. Um, I think a lot of people are waiting for that. Um, but whether or not that comes, I think, is the challenge. We're all seeing what's happening with rising food prices in New Zealand at the moment. And I couldn't imagine the damage that would cause here in China if uh, we had sort of inflation at the rates that we've seen around other parts of the world. I think at the same time, we look at, at China and everyone visits Shanghai and thinks that's representative of the market here, but it's completely not. Yeah, if you had inflation rates of five, six percent for for food products, that would be damaging for the vast majority of the population who aren't in those higher income brackets. So, I think that's the other balancing factor. It's it's not just everyone living in these tier one cities that we all visit for business trips or holidays. We've got to think a wee bit wider around what does the rest of the population feel and look like.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Just um segueing through um talking of local staff into another of the key findings in your report. And that was one that not far off half of Kiwi businesses with a presence in China have entirely localized staff. So that's no they're not Kiwi citizens, they're not Kiwi PRs. And that surprised some people, I guess. But I, I guess the, the question I wanted to ask is, was that a trend anyway? Because I know localization of senior management roles in foreign companies, not just New Zealand companies, was going on um, five to ten years ago. Or did the pandemic really uh, see a change in the way New Zealand companies are staffing their China operations?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I might kick this off and say that... Uh, You know, I've been here for quite a number of years as well, coming up to 10 years next year. And I think we definitely noticed an exodus of foreign staff pre-COVID. And, you know, this is due to a number of different factors. So this employment of local staff was definitely pre-COVID emerging trend, as you said, for other foreign companies in China, but um, also for New Zealanders. But I think that, you know, one of the things that local staff does offer that companies uh, realized before the pandemic hit was, you know, they offer huge advantages that foreign staff just can't offer. And
0: uh, COVID has really exacerbated this trend. So, um, what are those advantages? I mean, obviously, I would imagine familiarization with the local market and and ability to follow things like social media trends and so on would be a, a no brainer. But what are some of those um, key reasons to localize?
2: I think you've probably already hit the nail on the head there, Alistair. That connection into the way that China operates is, is a key advantage for your local managers or business leaders, even more so now that China is sort of becoming a wee bit more unique in terms of the platforms it uses to access consumers. We talk a lot about digitalization and to be honest, um, you don't really understand or, or know what that means unless you're living here, understanding China or, or buying your products uh, through the different platforms or e-commerce. I think the best example is you, you're never going to see the trends or changes in China by scrolling through your Facebook, your WhatsApp, um, or your Instagram, you've, you've really got to be on Redbook, Dolyan or TikTok um, or even WeChat to really see what's happening. So I think as China becomes more sophisticated, that need for, for integration or understanding of the market becomes so much more the real challenge, I think, which was probably exacerbated or, or shown through COVID is if you have got localised staff but that connection back to New Zealand isn't so strong, that's where the challenges can come in. Yeah. So it's been great to see that business travel open back up, that trust re-rebuilt really uh, and your Chinese team is travelling back to New Zealand to build that understanding, better communication, because if you can localise your staff, but also have a strong connection back to head office, I think that's the real advantage of, of having a strong team here on the ground.
0: Yeah. In terms of um, who people are taking on for these roles, is there still a New Zealand connection? You know, a, a lot of local staff maybe returning graduates and so on that are keen to continue a New Zealand connection. Or is that not really um, so important for your members?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it's really a mixed bag. And, you know, it really varies depending when you look across the different size of the companies. But, you know, there are a large number of New Zealand companies that do employ returning Chinese who have lived in New Zealand, studied in New Zealand um, to sort of lead their China based office. And the real benefit here, and I think this has been touched on by both of you, is Um, You have these local staff who already have that connection with New Zealand and they really believe in the quality of the products from New Zealand and they are passionate advocators of that New Zealand story. You know, they also have that advantage that perhaps, you know, New Zealand citizens might not, which is that they do understand the local market and at the same time bring that cultural and communication understanding of New Zealand to the company and the team here in China.
0: Yeah, no, it's great to see that link. I'm sure our universities are absolutely thrilled when their alumni are able to return back home and and continue that link as well. Turning to another of the findings in the survey, companies that responded were asked to rate the ease of doing business in China this year compared to 2019, which of course was the last year before COVID and almost 60% thought it was extremely difficult or somewhat difficult in comparison with a few years ago, and just 11% felt that it was somewhat easy in comparison. So I guess my question here is what are the main difficulties that Kiwi businesses now face uh, doing business in China compared to 2019? And are these mainly Temporary ones, as as we just struggle to to come out of COVID, or something more permanent that we
2: need to get used to. Yeah, it's it's probably a combination of both, to be honest, Alistair. I feel like there is probably a wee bit of a hangover um, post COVID, and some of those numbers that are coming through. As you say, the survey was was done in May, and it wasn't too hard to reflect upon twenty twenty two when demand planning was an absolute nightmare um, here in China. Logistics, as you can imagine, were were extremely difficult. Um, you couldn't plan in advance for anything, let alone your daily life and activities. So I feel like that definitely had a, a real effect and, and probably still a hangover on some of the numbers that you can read there in the report. But in terms of some of the permanent, more permanent changes, I think that complexity in terms of how we access consumers here in the market is making I suppose not necessarily more difficult but more complex to understand and changing very very quickly so the use of your online platforms online offline all of these new uh, digital channels that are popping up left right and center and and businesses are having to respond to those trends very quickly um, in order to sell those products it's not as simple as having shelf space in the supermarket, and that means you're getting share of wallet or consumers buying in. Those days are, are well and truly gone here in China, and it's all about live streaming, online e-commerce, online to offline sales, et cetera, which is a new concept and, and differs quite a lot for businesses versus other markets. And I think the other challenge that uh, a few of the comments in the report mention is the regulatory environment. As China's become more sophisticated, our uh, regulations change or, or get updated. Um, and that means that businesses have to respond and have to respond quickly. It's not always the case that you get favourable phase-in periods. And for businesses that China is one of many markets, it means that you're sometimes having to tailor or adapt product packaging uh, or even some of your regulatory requirements for one market, which can be a bit of a disadvantage for international companies versus local uh, which are purely focused on on china as their predominant market which i think becomes a bit of a challenge for some businesses depending upon the, the sector that you're in
0: is there also an upside to that um that is as, as regulation becomes more open and transparent I, I guess that if a new zealand company in china needs to seek redress then that's also become more upfront and and uh easily visible
2: Oh, completely. I think there's for for some businesses on the ground here, there's even examples Um, you'll have seen recently around some of the work that Zestbury's been doing around uh, the kiwifruit that's been grown here. I think they've seen some confidence around some of the regulatory changes. Um, And then for other businesses, it's just that process of change and and adapting of change which makes things a wee bit more complex. If you can meet the requirements, I think generally it can be a good thing. Um, But that sort of uncertainty around, is it going to change again? what's next, uh, all of that sort of becomes a bit of a, an extra burden or a grey cloud for, for many businesses operating here in the market.
0: Sure. Anna May, back to you for the next question. The survey focuses on um, businesses that are already doing business with China and that's um, absolutely understandable. So I guess they are the ones saying, well, we're invested in this and we're going to keep on being invested in this. And that seemed to be a generally positive message. But I guess in a sense that it was surveying the converted and that these are companies that have already taken that plunge and want to keep swimming in the China market. Um, do you have any sense, given you know some of the complexities that we've just been talking about, whether there are actually now companies that maybe 20 years ago might have considered China to be somewhat of a holy grail market and, and um, something to aspire to, are now beginning to say, look, it might just be too difficult for us and we might try our luck elsewhere. Or are you still seeing new companies joining the brick ranks or, or new companies arriving in market that, that you're able to survey in this um, business outlook report?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think you really hit the nail on the head there, Alistair, when you um, talked about you know 20 years ago, there is companies coming up to China, dropping product in market and um, making some really, really good sales figures. I think uh, what we're seeing now is there's definitely a, a huge slowdown on of that, which has been going on for a quite a few number of years, even um, pre-COVID. So I think, you know, over the past decade, China has become increasingly complex. Competition has become more fierce. China requires increasingly significant investment. And companies that do well require a leadership team with high ambitions and commitment to the long-term game. Um, These are some factors, and I think, you know, you couple those with COVID, it's definitely exacerbated the trend of less new entrants coming to the market. Um, And saying that, though, China's scale and the market access available to New Zealand companies offers growth prospects, which are hard to find elsewhere. And it's not really a bad thing to see new to export companies build their export capabilities and financials in markets that are easier to enter, while perhaps putting China into their long-term export strategy. At the same time, I think that companies need to always keep a pulse on their target markets and take the opportunities as they arise. So right now in China, sectors like pet food, health, wellness, tech and services, these are sectors that are actually growing fast. And we do see new to market companies from New Zealand and these sectors still taking advantage of this right now.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a a message coming through and what you guys are saying that, um, you know, there is still opportunity, but you have to work increasingly hard for it. Some would say it's always been a market like that, but I can just sense from some of your responses that uh, it's becoming even more a case of of really getting having to get to grips with it and and, and then working extremely hard. Well, one of the other aspects um, that you surveyed in your report was the the New Zealand China relationship, government relationship. and and I think all of us have known for many, many years that that's really an important framework and foundation for, business engagement between the two countries and the the survey i thought signaled a pretty good level of satisfaction uh, amongst companies that the relationship has been managed pretty well i think 71 percent were either satisfied or more than satisfied and that's pretty good scorecard Um, So I wanted to ask you both, why has there been this level of satisfaction? You know, what's been going well? Um, And we are, of course, a bipartisan um, organisation, as I'm sure is the brick. But what do you think your members' message to the next New Zealand government about management of the relationship would be?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think New Zealand's approach is been guided by its independent foreign policy and the New Zealand businesses um, that are here, they really recognize that differences will occur between New Zealand and China from time to time. And they really appreciate the careful way in which New Zealand and China continue to manage any differences on specific issues as they arise. There's definitely that sort of sense of predictability in terms of how New Zealand and China are going to respond to these um, particular issues. And I think furthermore, the signing of the free trade agreement in 2008 and also the upgrade in 2022, as well as the visit of the New Zealand Prime Minister in June of 2023. These are significant developments in the bilateral trade relationship and actions like these directly and positively impact our businesses and market. So if we had some recommendations to the next New Zealand government, you know, I think businesses would really like to see a continuation of the current management of the bilateral relationship. We'd like to see the government's continue collaboration in areas of historical strength, as well as deepen collaboration in emerging areas like tech, services, gaming, R&D, and sustainability. And thirdly, We always hear that relationships are king in China, so come and visit, learn about the culture, learn about the business environment, and demonstrate New Zealand's commitment to the relationship. It's really those high-level visits to market that bring valuable commercial opportunities and partnerships to New Zealand businesses here, and it builds trust on both ways. James, do you have anything to add to that?
2: yeah i think you've covered uh, everything there anime from a business perspective i think that consistency and predictability around how new zealand's managed the relationship has really been key for businesses i um, mean given confidence we've all seen what's happened globally and australia is a great example where um, it can really impact trade and businesses depending upon that relationship so the numbers tell the story of how i suppose grateful or or thankful New Zealand businesses are around how the government has managed that relationship in the past couple of years. So so carry on and and continue that predictability and consistency, I think is is really key for us and giving us confidence uh, here in the market. China's not going to go away in terms of its importance in the global economy and the importance of uh, New Zealand's export profile. So managing that, keeping that front of mind and We'd love to see uh, another trade delegation up here uh, once the new government is formed. Uh, I think aspects like that, it had great effects here in China. It made the the one o'clock or six o'clock news in New Zealand a few times, but it was everywhere on social media here in China. The red carpet got rolled out. um, And for us and for our customers, them seeing that strength of the relationship between New Zealand companies, their government, uh, and the New Zealand and China government, they get real confidence that New Zealand is going to be able to provide security of supply of products and goods up here into China. So yeah, continue on would would be what we'd like to see.
0: Yeah, no message received loud and clear. Certainly that visit played very well back here, as you said, Jimmy, as well. Hopefully we will see more of them and and other ministerial visits um, in future as well. And we'd love to see Chinese leaders come down to New Zealand as well. I'm going to move on back to another market strategy question that you covered in your report, and that was that localization of products for the China market is now one of the top focus opportunities for a lot of New Zealand goods and services exporters. So can you explain a little bit more about what that actually means and and what's driving it? And do you have any good examples you can share of of Kiwi companies that have been doing this uh, really well?
2: Yeah, localization is a a hot topic here in China at the moment. We often talk about sort of the rise of national pride in China when it comes to goods. I think the one confusion is that means that a a made in China or a China flag on a product means a consumer will buy it. But that is completely not the case. When we talk about that nationalisation of goods or, or localization, it is really around tailoring goods for the unique consumers here in China. And that's been, a, I suppose, a story that's been exacerbated in the past three years. Everyone looks at China with its borders shut during COVID and thinks that it sort of stood still from the rest of the world. But in all honesty, they invested in in tailored products for their own unique consumer needs. And now I think your foreign companies or global companies are trying to play catch up in many respects. So... For us here at Fonterra, we do a lot of work around how do we localise our products and our applications for, for unique uh, consumer needs. Uh, a good example is the investments we've been making in terms of our application centres for our food service businesses. So we have five of these centres, which are amazing kitchen spaces located in five different cities around China, whose day-to-day job with 50 chefs across the country is to take our amazing New Zealand dairy products and find ways to include them into Chinese cuisine or adapt their application to uh, suit unique Chinese consumer needs. So we end up with these amazing and somewhat different applications of products from cream cheese and your latte to uh, different cheese products on on bakery applications that you or I would never buy (laughs) in a bakery in, uh, in New Zealand, but become the next big thing here in China. So for us, it's really around how do you make sure that You're taking innovation from the consumer. We work with our teams in New Zealand and our R&D staff, bring that to China and then go, how do we adapt and make new products, new needs to meet these uh, unique trends that don't exist anywhere else in the world?
0: Mm. And is that driven by a sort of pride? China's culinary traditions, for example, are are really worth celebrating or does it just taste better for palates to incorporate New Zealand ingredients into these more traditional Chinese foods, for example?
2: It's probably a combination of both. I'd say you've seen a bit more interest in, in Chinese history and, and culture. Um, and so for us, it's around how do we, instead of using, a, I suppose, a plant-based oil product, how can we use a, a butter or a, a dairy uh, fat, which has that sort of better taste or texture profile and incorporate that into to local cuisine? A good example would be, you'll be aware of the, uh, the Mooncake uh, Festival that'll be coming up. Everyone will be gifting these little mooncake-type products to, to their friends and their families. Um, so how do we incorporate uh, different types of, of dairy, such as butter, into some of those products? How do you include things like dairy fats, dairy butters, dairy creams um, into some of these products, which have traditionally been you know, very heavy in margarines or, or plant-based oils? So trying to take that sort of common Chinese culture and cuisine and incorporating some, some healthier dairy alternatives uh, into that market space.
1: I think it's, you know, with every market, right, and every culture, they've, you know, they've all developed their own tastes, their own cuisines, um, you know, if we're talking about food and beverage, and it's really, really important, I think, as a brand to to really teach the consumers or work with the consumers through your product and how the consumer, you know, how does this fit into your life and um, really make sure that your product is fitting into, into their lives as well. I think we saw this particularly, I think James just mentioned it as a trend sort of going through COVID was um, you had those domestic companies here that things, uh, foreign goods weren't being uh, imported as much, there was struggle there. And so you had domestic companies, you know, really developing new products, good quality products, cheaper products and really addressing their consumers needs. So as borders have opened back up, foreign companies really need to sort of echo what these domestic companies have had essentially a three-year head start on. And so I think I've got three quite interesting and different examples from New Zealand companies that are doing that quite well over here. Firstly, spring sheep milk, a really interesting example of um, product localization, but also their marketing localization as well. Um, So A1 beta casein intolerance, it's quite a common allergy here in China, and spring sheep's route to the consumer was first via goat's milk consumers as the education of casein was already there rather than trying to go through those cow milk consumers um, and so their whole milk powder infant formulas mid-senior formula and children growth formula are all formulas that were developed according to their Chinese consumers demands and in terms of localizing their marketing they've got some interesting research that they put out so they researched their consumers' responses to images, and they ended up changing the style of the banner to include more cartoon imagery. So, globally, it would be more photographic imagery of New Zealand, uh, of sheep, of um, children, but they included some more cartoons into this imagery based on the research, and the average time on the homepage increased from 19 seconds to 29 seconds, so just a... Again, a really good example of how that product localization, that marketing localization based on research um, can really, really help you connect better to your consumer. I think another really interesting example, which is perhaps not so much the product itself, but the services that go alongside your product in China and how you really need to localize them. So the oral New Zealand oral healthcare brand, Grin Natural. Um, So they've got actually quite an extensive uh, global CSR initiative um, called Share a Grin. So if you buy one toothbrush and Grin will actually donate um, another toothbrush to a child in need. Um, And they do this across many markets, including New Zealand, Australia and the US as well. So Grin runs this campaign in China, I think, yearly, and they partner with local charities, local hospitals and schools not only to to donate their product to chinese kids in need but they also run an extensive education program alongside it so they're on site, they're giving out product, they're teaching these kids about oral hygiene, as well as creating age and language appropriate games and tools for these kids to take home, get excited about oral healthcare and for their family families to be educated about it too. Um, so they're again, like a very, very great example of having a product, but also localizing and tailoring your service to educate about your product to your Chinese consumer. And I think um, finally, As well, Zespri has quite a good example of um, how operational localization brings you closer to your customers and in the end gives you more price control over your end product. And so during COVID, you know, we saw a lot of those domestic companies, the gap between them and the end customer really shortening. Um, And so there's that sort of competition there for foreign companies. And Zespri, like most companies, began by back-to-back trading with China. They moved into setting up an office and a team. And now I think they have about 90 staff in market and they own their own supply chain, including their own chartered ships for China. They act as their own IOR. They deliver product to their distributors warehousing. They do the repackaging for them. And this level of operational localization gives a company the ability to respond quickly to the customer's needs, as well as gives them more control to increase the sales price of their product. So there I think just three really different examples of you know how that localization can really, really play out um, and the types of thinking that New Zealand businesses really really need to bring to China when they're trying to do well in this market.
0: yeah, it's a real um, integration um, narrative that you're telling there for sure. I had two more questions uh, just to round out some of the findings in the report that I found really interesting. and one um, was the finding that While over half of the survey respondents thought awareness of New Zealand's brand in China was either strong or very strong, the other 40% of Kiwi companies thought it was maybe average. But what I guess I found really uh, interesting was that a lot of companies didn't seem too concerned about that because the country of origin is becoming less important than marketing quality products made for the China market. And I guess it's sort of backing up what you've just been talking about, you know, with Spring Sheep moving to more cartoons and and less maybe images of the lakes and the mountains, and and also some of what Fonterra's been doing um, with product uh, injection into local products and so on. So, are we now seeing the the slow demise of the the clean, green New Zealand image um, in the sense that consumers don't really care anymore? They've, they they kind of know that, but they're more interested in other things. And if we are, then what's going to replace it? What are people going to think about when they think of New Zealand in the future in the China market?
2: Yeah, the, the survey has really picked up on that point, which has probably been a trend that's played out again in, in the last couple of years. I wouldn't say that the New Zealand origin is uh, no longer a unique selling point. I'd say it still is a unique selling point. It still does insinuate that high-quality, clean, green image, product safety, but it's it's not enough on its own anymore, I think. The days of, of slapping a made in New Zealand silver so fern sticker on a product uh, doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to attract the high price point or have an advantage over mm. your competitors. Uh, it still does provide a benefit, but unless that product is is tailored and is meeting a unique uh, consumer need, it's not going to be enough on its own. So that combination of, of provenance, which is important, combined with localization, I think for businesses that can hit that sweet spot of a New Zealand origin product designed for a Chinese consumer. Uh, oh. That's where everyone wants to really head at the moment um, to find the best of, of both worlds. Yeah, yeah. It's
0: just another example of having to work increasingly hard, isn't it, in the market. Look, one final question, and this is something that our council picked up when we were up in China in May as well, is that maybe you know, 10, 20 years ago, New Zealand companies uh, at the high end of the market and say, um, uh, primary produce we're very much competing with other foreign companies also exporting the same quality of primary produce to China. And the survey picked up that now an amazingly high 91% of respondents saw increasing domestic competition as one of the top competitions in the China market. So um, how are iwi companies responding to this challenge? Yeah,
2: it would would be fascinating, Alistair, if we had results from a survey five to 10 years ago to compare and contrast how this has changed. I think we would have had 91% of respondents five to 10 years ago say that increasing international competition Mm -hmm. in China was the biggest threat. And now that's really flipped and it's all about uh, what are the domestic players doing, how do New Zealand companies differentiate and compete? I think one of the good examples I would have would we recently purchased a vacuum cleaner for our apartment uh, in Shanghai a few months ago, and you're sort of tossing up around which brand you go for. Uh, at home, we would always see at home in New Zealand that Dyson, you know, is the number one brand, the best product, um, and and you pay the price for it. And it's the same here in China uh, in terms of the price point, but for us, we ended up going with a, a Xiaomi, a local uh, electronics brand, because. That product connected to our wi-fi we have the uh, xiaomi internet router um, you push a button and for some reason it connects to all of our different devices and the, the apartment now cleans itself um, whereas the the international premium product didn't offer that same connectivity um, into the china ecosystem and so again i think it comes back to that new zealand companies needing to localize uh, really understand at a time where the digitalization of the market here is is going at 100 mile an hour, the connectedness through e-commerce. Um, so not just localizing your products, but localizing how you sell is the other aspect. And then another key thing for New Zealand companies is that expansion into to new horizons within where geographically in China you target. In terms of your tier one and tier two cities, yes, New Zealand companies tend to have good access, but how do we get greater demand? within some of the wider population that we don't necessarily have access to today. And that's where a lot of your domestic players uh, are really winning. So how do we compete with them more um, to access more of China's population? I think are the the three key things for us, localization, e-commerce or digitalization, and then that expansion to to access more demand.
0: Thank you again to Anna Mae Isby and James Robertson for sharing their on the ground insights from Shanghai with us today. If you would like to access a free copy of the NZBRIC Business Outlook Report, it can be found on the Roundtable's website, nzbric.com. And to access our back catalogue of New Zealand China Council podcasts, visit our website, nzchinacouncil.org.nz, or follow us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Spotify. Thanks for listening.